Mark Matthews is a big wave surfer and keynote speaker. He's won two Oakley Biggest Wave Awards and was subject. Three. Oh, it's three. I actually read that on your website. I thought it was three too. <laughs> Pardon me. He's won three Oakley Biggest Wave Awards and was the subject of the 2011 Fighting Fear documentary that told the story of his recovery um, from a terrible injury and how he fought to overcome his biggest fears. On this podcast, we love to interview interesting people in business, especially when we have the same clients and the same values. According to his website, Mark is obsessed with the relationship between personal growth, high performance and fulfillment, which makes him instantly interesting to most of our clients who value exactly the same thing. Um, I've known Mark since high school and he's always had a reputation for being an, an excellent surfer, but it wasn't until we were at a wedding about five years ago when I got to see how good Mark was at storytelling. His best man speech was one of the best I've ever heard. Mark, how do you get from being a pretty shy guy in high school to speaking in front of thousands every week? And can you tell us a bit about the work that you're doing now? That, that transition going from <laughs> stuttering in front of a classroom and refusing to ever speak in front of people to becoming a keynote speaker was way harder than learning to surf big waves that could kill me. Like way scarier, way more nerve wracking, took forever. <laughs> but um, yeah, but it kind of, it proved to me that I could take what I learned in surfing about dealing with that sort of stress and fear and, and apply it to a completely different area. And then that way I could, I realized that the same tools kind of apply regardless of what your fear or stress is or what your goal is the same tools of managing the fear and stress apply regardless. And I mean, it just took lots of work, like lots of, I don't know, untold amounts of money on, on speaking, public speaking courses, facilitation courses, and then just slowly but surely building the experience by just getting up in front of anyone who will listen like the wedding speech oh, <laughs> and, and telling, amazing. and telling stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see, I went the other way around. So I came through school and, you know, as a pretty confident public speaker, I did all the, you know, the, the debating and stuff at school. I was happy in, in my element in front of the whole school talking. Like I was fine with that, but I didn't start surfing until later in life. And that scares the hell out of me. So yeah. I <laughs> We're the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Try it, but I don't think it works as well to try and take what you can do as far as public speaking and apply it to the surf. I feel like, um, um it, it's i mean just like the same framework as as far as it's just experience that makes you comfortable in the scary environment and it's just slowly but surely building that experience it's just in surfing getting the experience is so difficult because the ocean changes every single day so it's like the the, the time frame that you need to build experience in in the sport of surfing is huge because there's so many variations in uh in surf conditions because the weather changes every day so it just takes longer <laughs> basically yeah yeah true you can't you can't just go out and practice on a on a 20 no. wave pools might fix that fix that though so if you well, have to learn in the wave pool it'll be a i don't know if they're as much fun but tell definitely, me definitely not as much fun, fun, fun. <laughs> um I mean, if you don't have the fear of rocks, really, are you, are you actually surfing? But anyway. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, storytelling, like that, that best man speech, honestly, like I had no idea that, that's, that you had that in you, actually. So 
um, which you, it was just a really great surprise. But how, is, how important is storytelling in getting, you know, educating people, particularly in the corporate environment, when the room might be filled with pretty high achievers already? That storytelling um, like has to be such a big part of um, getting your point across and, and educating people about the stuff that you know so well. Yeah, I think it's by far the most important communication tool that you can have. Like you can read all the how to do something or you can explain and teach people this is how you do things. But uh, to get buy-in from them, for them to like believe what you're saying, to do it through story is so much more powerful because the story can like evoke emotion, you know, and then and that draws people in. So like two different people can say the exact same thing about let's say how to diet in order to lose weight. But if one just says, do this, this, and this, and that's it, the chances are that that audience, only a small few will do it. But if one tells an amazing story or journey of how it's changed their life because they followed these rules and it's really explicit and draws them into the emotion, then you're going to have more chance that that audience will, like a greater number will do what they're hearing or the lessons and that's just like when it, when i read more about it because i was so interested in it after being told that this is kind of the um the most beneficial way to communicate it's it's just when they show the history of humans it's like that's how we communicated for tens of thousands of years like and and it's through stories that we learned everything and and spoke to each other and learned from each other so it's just like wired into your dna that you that that's the most beneficial way to learn something. Yeah, so true. Um, coming from the area that we grew up in, like we've both got a lot of Aboriginal friends as well. And, you know, that's oldest living culture and that's how they do things. They just pass things down. It's like we can, we can physically see that storytelling evolution like happening, you know, as we grow up around the people that we were with. I 100% agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the ancient form of it and it was still alive for so long, yeah. And now there's just all the the modern forms of it and then you just add the new digital age and all the different technology, but you just got to still keep the storytelling element into whatever you're trying to tell someone, I think, is seems to be the most valuable. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your story. So if people are listening and aren't familiar with the documentary or your work as a um, keynote speaker, um, can you give us a little couple of the high or low points that make up your story? Yeah, I, I mean, I bet I've surfed big waves professionally for about 15 years. And, um, I mean, whenever I show audiences the footage of photos of what I do, they're sure that I must be crazy or, or maybe have some kind of brain defect so that I don't, like they think that I mustn't feel fear to be able to do that. But when I explain to them, it's like, it's not like that at all. I feel fear just like everyone else, but it was just through like a, a desire to want to build a career out of the sport of surfing, like that really strong desire that I was able to push myself to get the experience to make surfing big waves like relatively comfortable for me eventually you know and and be able to perform in that scary environment and then so i've done that for for 15 years and my whole thing was that i was never really the most talented surfer as a kid there were way more talented surfers out there but i learned early 
in order to kind of compete with those more talented surfers and, and be more valuable to the companies that wanted to sponsor surfers Mm -hmm. for me to compete with the more talented surfers and be more valuable. I just learned to surround myself with really talented people, like the best filmers, best photographers, uh, best water safety crew, like all, all the people that surround me, they make me more valuable than all the other surfers out there, but you know, that are more talented than me. So that was kind of the, what I learned in my surfing career. And then I went through some like highs winning the Oakley awards and then, uh, then multiple like areas of lows, like bad wipeouts and injuries and stuff like that. The, the latest of which is probably the worst (laughs) where I dislocated my knee and, and, uh, which left me with a permanent, nerve damage so i can't use my foot anymore and i was kind of told that i won't be able to surf properly again i won't be able to get my like my surfing career is is finished um and to me that like so that was two and a half years ago around about and i'm just getting to the point where i can get my big wave surfing career back on track after like sort of a two-year rehab period and it was kind of for me the perfect time that two years to take everything I'd been learning throughout my career and stuff I'd been keynote speaking about, about sort of overcoming fear, building resilience, like how to harness motivation and all the different health aspects that go along with that and apply it to proving the doctors wrong and coming back and surfing again. So for me, that was like the, the perfect way. And now I've just been telling the last sort of six months, year while I've been injured, I've been telling that story that's happening right now. And it just seems that that's resonating the most with people compared to the stuff that I used to talk about just because it's real time, it's happening and, and it's kind of evidence that um, that what I'm talking about works if you, if you apply it. Because I've gone from, I think, I don't know, doing like 10 or, or, or 15 keynotes a year to now doing like 60 in the last like 12 months and just off the back of telling these recent stories and, and what I've been doing that's helped me so much. Oh, wow. So it might be a bit off the questions that I sent through, but um, that whole, the being like exercise and sports scientist, um, that's where I sort of started my career. And, and as an athlete myself, one of the big things that is a, is a really big shift in your um, career is when you stop doing that thing that you are really good at. And I know so many athletes who have, um, who have gone through that whole cycle of depression, anxiety, loss of, um, loss of kind of your, I guess it's like, it's what, it's what makes you, it's your identity. So, um, and then to pull yourself up from that and, and build that resilience is one thing to do that in an in an um, in an athlete in a sport sort of setting, but I think that it resonates a lot with um, corporates as well because I think there's there's big changes that people might go through that could be a new job. There might be a I don't know a big big shift in the way people are working, um, and there are those really major lows. So building, I don't know, building the resilience to come back to that. I can guess that that would be something that people really want to hear about, especially from someone who might be just a few steps ahead of them in that process. Um, yeah, I think, and it's, I think the, um, 
the 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 thing that makes or allows me to resonate with an audience um, a lot is because that I I it works in surfing like so in big wave surfing like managing the stress and anxiety of a dangerous sport. Yep. And it works there, and it works in me overcoming my fear of public speaking and managing the stress there and becoming good at that. So it's kind of like two examples of what seem like completely different worlds or fears, um, but it still works across the board. So I think like, so then, cause so many people have that fear of public speaking, whereas they can't relate to me overcoming a fear of riding huge waves, but they can relate to the public speaking one. And, and especially for corporates these days. And if you go, like into the tech industry when you get an audience of like highly skilled, most likely somewhat introverted tech engineers, like software engineers, and then they need to be upskilled to be managers and then manage a team themselves. Like for them, and I know this because I'm introverted as well, is like that is the scariest transition ever because all of a sudden you've gone just working on your own project, don't have to deal with anyone really to then managing people and dealing with that social environment is terrifying. So it's kind of, I think that's where I relate to different audiences and, and ones that clients don't really expect because they think I'm just going to talk about riding big waves. Yeah. 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 Um, can I, can we talk about change and change management? So our clients are typically going through some of those, you know, major changes. We've, we've got like lawyers and consultants, bankers, um, and, you know, traditionally they might have strived for the so-called like corner office or, um, but they're now having to work uh, like hot desking for activity-based working. And I think there's this big shift in um, potentially how they have that opinion of themselves. So um, employees, I, I guess in our industry, employees, even at the top, no longer own a part of real estate, for example. So there's no sort of real estate award for um you know, being really good at what you do and for having years of service. So um, there is this real dynamic shift, I guess. So with the digital transformation that you're seeing as well and the, the power dynamic that's shifting to people who can be agile, change management is is really needed to guide them along the way. Um, are there any strategies that you've learned in regards to those big life changes that you could, um, I don't know, sort of impart on the audience? I know one of them from... I don't know. It's like even letting go of that ego. So that, that opinion that you had of yourself, people, people are experiencing this right now and and they could really gain a lot, I think, from, from understanding that process of change that you've gone through. Um, Can you talk a little bit about change management stuff? Yeah. I mean, you can go into so many aspects of it, into so many details, but um, I think, one thing that I've been playing around with recently and it's like kind of it's ancient wisdom, but it's just been brought up again with, with some recent neuroscience studies because they can see the brain working in certain ways mm-hmm. and it, and it's really the application and the, of applying a perspective of where you're either going to be a, uh, a predator or a prey like your mentality mm-hmm. and it's like and what what decides whether you respond to any given situation of, of whether you're a predator or prey is whether the stress and the change is like forced upon you 
or whether you go out and seek the change and look for it and then take it on head on. So if it's forced upon you, you, you become like a scared uh, prey animal, like a rabbit. And the way your physiology and all the neural circuitry in your brain works then is it, it's a, like an overstimulation of stress hormones and your capacity to then deal with the change is so much lower. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you take the mindset of you're going to like seek out the change and, f- you know, be on the front foot with it and embrace it when it happens, then you, the neuro circuitry is more like a predator animal, like a, like a wolf, like, and, the stress hormones released are so much less just because of that. So your capacity to then deal with the stress that goes along with the change is that much greater, like exponentially greater. So it's like the same stress that the change creates, but the mindset that you have of, of how you frame it or your perspective of the situation is what determines whether you can deal with that amount of stress. That's why some people, just seem to be able to take on board so much so much stress and then others can't like because it's they're on the front foot and they know it's scary but they embrace it because they uh they know what's on the other side you know if they adapt to that change is is worthwhile you know does that make sense it's kind of that resonates with me really well i think um even in the past few months of like we we (laughs) just did something really silly in like uh remaining to work full-time um and having a baby and trying to manage that and <laughs> that's pretty stressful but yeah if oh, you it's about as stressful it, as it can get <laughs> you know you've got an eight-week-old now um yes <laughs> um, yeah so to even even from like early days um you know w- well for work now work isn't where you go to anymore it's the it's the things that you can do so um try, in trying to embrace um you know, wanting to stay working, but not necessarily being at work and what you can balance around that. I think if you can embrace that side of um, that change and use it to your advantage, you can actually harness a lot of that stress and use it for good. And there's also this sort of element that, well, whatever stress there is that's coming at you, it's not going to last forever. Um, I guess yeah, it won't last forever as long as you like adapt to it, upskill yeah. yourself, and then you can take it on. Like, because it otherwise if it's bad enough and it, it can crush you, like that's part of life, but it's like, so you need to upskill, learn what you need to learn, adapt to the new environment. And then the environment will, will just be less stressful over time. And as long as, I mean, this is what I talk about in my keynote. The main part is as long as you have in the forefront of your mind, the, the, clear picture of of what you're chasing like what you want to achieve sort of week to week month to month year to year and even more so at the forefront of your mind you know the reason why you want to achieve it so what does success mean for you yeah like so what and and i think the the most powerful thing you can do is tie your loved ones to your success so how do your loved ones benefit from you achieving that success like what does it mean for their lives and then all of a sudden you have this this sort of great uh, meaning in your life Mm. that then makes you want to look for the change so it it turns you into the 
the wolf, you know, that goes seeking the change to continually be better and you're on the front foot and then your capacity to deal with stress is exponentially uh, greater, you know, and that's what happens to you naturally when you become a mother, right? You, yeah. you kind of like all of a sudden your hormones change completely. Like you've got a, you know, like you've got a little baby here that you, you have to fend for and keep alive. And it's like what they call mum strength or dad strength. It's like you, you actually change when that happens like hormonally. Yeah. So you become like exponentially more adapted to be able to deal with the stress of bringing up a baby you know like that's that yeah. happens like then yep. you can track that so it's kind of like proof in the pudding but it, i think everyone just like you you lose along the way sometimes and usually the most stressed out people is that they they've lost along the way the reasons why they do what they do or the reason why they're doing what they do is probably not the right one for them like and everyone's got different reasons but it, it probably doesn't sit with them deeply that this is, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing probably doesn't really touch them because then it, if it does, then your capacity is, is so much greater. Like if I, if I said, um, if, if someone said to me, okay, tomorrow you have to run a full marathon and, and with the disability I've got the, the drop foot, like nerve damage, yep. I'd be like, if I tried to do that, I'd probably make five kilometers before I collapsed. Right. Like it, it'd just be too hard and I'd give up because the pain would be too bad. But if someone said to me, you've got to run a marathon to keep your baby alive tomorrow yeah, like I, would, yeah. I probably set a record like and i wouldn't even blink <laughs> like i wouldn't it, the pain wouldn't even register with me do you know what i mean like it, it would not register so that that i mean if you think put things into that context then that makes you have a better understanding of what your capacity would be to, to yeah. deal with things so it's kind of like here's all this job pressure and stress and it and it's hard and and you think you can't deal with it, but if you put it into that context or perspective, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, probably can deal with it. Like, and then you adapt, and then it does become easier. Yeah, and I guess it's I guess that's why we see so many athletes being great business people. I think that they probably have had that from a young age, um, or figured it out in their in one domain. And so when they crisscross into business, I guess um, that that really helps them in that regard um yeah can, definitely if they can carry that that um like the capacity to de- push themselves yeah it, it, that that's another like psychological truth yeah. yeah if you can do that in one area of your life it doesn't necessarily it it, it builds your courage to do it in another area so you might not be a necessarily you still got to build the skill to do it in that area but if you have found out that you're courageous in one area of your life then you're you're most likely to be able to carry the courage into the other area or carry the motivation you know like like an athlete might carry they know that they can be that motivated push themselves that hard at something yeah so they can carry that you know they've because they've learned to push themselves in that way which is is valuable yeah but it, it's you still got to build the skill set that the academics built over over their lifetime you know so it's yeah for sure <coughs> excuse me um 
talk to us about the zone. So how do you get into that? I mean, the ultimate goal of most businesses is that they're, they're going to great lengths to create these environments for their employees to really get in the zone more quickly, um, to get there longer, um, you know, to increase efficiency, productivity. Just talk to us through the zone, how you get there. Oh, it's the, it's the best like topic. It's like that mythical thing that, that everyone wants. And it's like, meditators are trying to do it like over in this this version of it and then employers want their employees to slip into the zone and be ultra productive it's it's such an interesting like concept um i from what i know from personal experience and then the stuff that i've looked at into it there's like a, a fairly simple framework it's like like what we just talked about, what you're moving towards. So whatever your goal is of what the work you're doing mm-hmm. has to be, has to be meaningful enough so that you want to do the job. Right. Yep. So you have to be moving towards a meaningful goal. And then the work that you're doing has to be difficult enough so that it holds your attention, but not too difficult that it becomes impossible to do. So it's like you got to walk on that fine border of you, you've need the right amount of stress in your life, but you need the tools to deal with the stress. And when you find that perfect border and you're moving towards like a meaningful goal, then the byproduct is the zone. You know what I mean? Like, cause then you slip into the zone and you have more moments through your life that where you're in the zone because you're moving towards something that's meaningful. It's uh, difficult enough to be entertaining for you. And, um, and you see continual progression. That's the other part. So for employers, it's like you've got to give your <laughs> enough um, respect to employ employees to take on big roles, like, but not too big. So you've got to find out what they're capable of. Give them that role that's like, entertaining enough for them or stressful enough to keep them there but not tip them over where it's impossible for them to do like so don't set ridiculous targets that are impossible because then they become too stressed and can't deal with it but don't give them such a stupid job that's so boring then they're not going like you can't ask someone to be in the zone for eight hours doing something boring like they're going to last seven minutes at a time basically other and and they'll get two hours of workout for you a day but if that's the job then that's all you can sort of uh, expect from that from that work you know so but if, if you can find that perfect mix and then like you're saying when you're trying to retain talent for a company it's like if if what the company's doing is not meaningful to the employers then it's going to be difficult for them to put in that effort find the zone in what they're doing because the meaning's the important part unless they can just tie that financial gain from the job to other aspects of their life that are important, then you can kind of tie it. But then you'll, you'll find it more often when the, the work's the perfect balance between difficult and uh, you can bring your skill set in and make it just that fine line. Yeah. I've, I've heard people explain it with the, uh, a psychologist explains it amazing. It's like you walk the line between order and chaos. And it's like chaos is the whole land of opportunity and, and difficulty that's out there and orders your skill set that you bring to that, that you can extract um, benefit from the chaos and you walk that fine line. And that's like a, a uh, Taoist principle, like the yin and yang. 
you know, the yin yeah. and yang. Yeah, yeah. That that's what they that's what that symbolizes because that's like the meaning of life to do walk that line, and then the benefit the side things are the zone or happiness. Like they're the byproducts of it. Do you and have I think to if you apply that to work, then it works. <laughs> How often are you in the zone? Are you in the zone when you're working um, foot waves? Yeah. So for me, in, in it, so surfing, like the moments are when I'm exactly what I'm explaining. It's like on the knife's edge or the border between order and chaos. And the chaos is the wave, like the huge wave that I'm, I'm surfing. And the order is my skill set that I bring to that environment. And then when I'm on that like knife's edge between wiping out and, and riding the wave perfectly, then I'm just the natural byproduct of that is the zone. Like it's, and then it's the same thing when I'm, if I'm on stage in front of a big audience or doing a podcast with you, like it's <laughs> when it's engaging enough and the reason why you're doing it's good enough, then you don't think about anything else. I think it's a byproduct. Like I don't think, I think if you, if you put that framework to it, then the byproduct is the zone rather than I need to like the goal is not the zone, you know, does that make sense? Like rather than chase, it's like rather than chase happiness, apply this framework and then the byproduct is happiness or the byproduct is the zone because they're they're pretty much the, I think the same thing. When you lose those hours of time is like, that's happiness. Like you lost those hours of time because you're so immersed in the present moment. You, know? you, you didn't do a psychology degree at some point that I didn't know about. Oh, <laughs> I think maybe close enough. I'd feel like I could sit the psych exams at Harvard and um, do pretty and good. I've, right. I've listened to so because I'm trying to. I, I spend a lifetime trying to figure out for myself one how to improve myself to beat all the more talented surfers. And and the main part of that was how do I deal with fear, like because my my um, competitive uh, like the the distinguishing factor for me was if I could deal with the fear better than these more talented surfers, then I could be more successful than them, you know, because then I could go and surf more big swells over time and the stress wouldn't wear me down like it wears them down, and then just by sheer volume, I could get more. Um, media exposure like photos and videos because i could do the sheer volume where they would outperform me on one swell but not over a year so it's like i i probably read every piece of literature ever written about fear i reckon over a 15 year period (laughs) and it's so much interesting stuff out there's a lot of rubbish out there i think but there's um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff yeah like um I've, i've seen some good um Creative, I saw a really good creativity and fear presentation by Todd Sampson, you know, the guy who... He's awesome, yeah. He's, awesome. he's yeah. got really good TV shows about it, yeah. Yeah, excellent, really good. But he, yeah. he did a keynote at the AIS um, when I was down there and I was presenting as well, but <laughs> obviously his presentation blew me out of the water. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was so memorable. He uses um, mountain climbing instead of... Yeah, he's an amazing climber. mountain climber, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, what's, what's some bad advice that's often spread through motivational talks and keynotes and, and what's the best advice to ignore? Oh, I think it'd be the same thing. And, and I think it's just cause it's not explained that well, but it's like uh, that you have to be optimistic. I, I don't, 
I'm I'm one of the most pessimistic people going around, but I know that pessimism in a way is what drives me to prepare better for the situation coming up. You know, as long as the the pessimism and the fear doesn't um, freeze you and stop you doing things, it's such an amazing tool to make you prepare. And, but if you're like just always optimistic about everything like that, I just don't think that's sustainable. And then you don't make like uh, clever decisions if you constantly just think everything's going to be fine, you know? And I, and sometimes I think that that gets misconstrued when it's, it's delivered. It's like, if you're not optimistic, then something's wrong with you. Whereas I think it's a, a way more natural state to be pessimistic, but know that, you you have the tools and the uh, the ability to deal with being pessimistic and then that's that's a tool in itself to be able to yeah. be successful yeah does that make sense yeah. that's, a good I, I, that's a good answer i think it's diff like the the part where it gets this is the part where um like a, a better way i think and and from what i've i've like experienced when i'm reading something the better version of of the op optimism version what you've got to be optimistic is just get a clear perspective on your situation like a real perspective so that it's not overly optimistic but it's not overly pessimistic you know you don't want those parts of your whether they're your personality traits to kind of dominate everything you see so you don't see the world as it is you know so and and like a tool that i use because i'm hyper pessimistic mm -hmm. is um just like gratitude practices so I, if i implement them like it'll it'll stop me the 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 sort of pessimism and then like i've got a sort of neurotic sort of tendencies and and they'll like stress me out if i don't like implement a few gratitude techniques just to reframe my situation so and then when you reframe it, then that's a better starting point to go out and do what you need to do. Like, for example, um, like you'll know this from an athlete, like being an athlete, when you got to go to training and you're hating the world, like it's four in the morning, five in the morning, you're just hating the world. You don't want to be in there, you know, like no natural sort of sense in your body wants you to be doing what you're doing. And then so to train in that state, it's not actually that beneficial, you know, it's way more beneficial to walk into that gym. And even though you're hating it, you're like, imagine how much worse it would be. I don't know if, if I had a spinal cord injury and I couldn't walk into this gym and I couldn't do anything. And like, how much would someone who has a spinal cord injury love to be doing what I do right now? And then, so if you get that mindset, then then it's a better starting point to do the work you got to do. And I think your body then adapts to the work you're going to do a little better as well. So that's kind of like, I think that's a better spin on the optimism tool, like a, a mind frame, I think. Yeah. But just don't, that. don't be down on yourself when you're not optimistic because it's pretty natural. <laughs> it's a survival technique to not yeah. be optimistic. And it's probably a balance as well because you need your sort of optimistic people in your work, in, in your, in your company and then you need your personal definitely to like balance it out as well but um yeah, yeah my yeah then that's team building yeah yeah and I, and i don't sit there for hours doing I, i'm not a meditator i meditate as i run like i yeah. find running on the sand really meditative but yeah my yeah. um my alarm says run because you can 
Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, so yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's like, That's yeah, like the best 5 thing. Um, yeah. And it's freezing. But, yeah, just run because you can't and some people can't. That's it. So, you yeah. summed up my long-winded answer in one line. It's <laughs> <That's> perfect. <laughs> or it's like work because you can. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Such a good line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just yeah. go and do it because you can. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That, that's the perspective. Yeah. It's like jobs are fucking hard these days. Like employers want their employees to work so much longer, like more hours, get more done, be more productive, take on more responsibility because they want, don't want as many employees. They don't want to give you <clears throat> job security anymore. Like it's, yeah. it's stressful, but it's kind of like you're also still in one of the better performing economies in the world. And there is still a lot of job opportunities, like kind of, work because you can like it's you're lucky to be working and earning the money that you're earning so it's yeah it's it's hard it's just hard to tell someone that you know like unless they experience it for themselves you mentioned that you do a lot of like to to tech companies and stuff and like you're a big wave surfer and you're talking you might be talking to a bunch of software engineers um what do you think one of the most surprising things that they take away from your talks um, what are they surprised I, by you? I think when I tell them, um, like my fear of public speaking, that's, you know, like, and when I go into the detail of how hard it was for me, like, and uh, me being a stuttering mess, if I had to stand, like when, when I first went to South Sydney yeah. and like I went from yeah. an all boys school, <laughs> yeah, where yeah. I could just hide away, not do anything. And then to like a co-ed school, and, like, for an introvert it's like the most nerve-wracking experience of your life and then and then I, I just avoided it like I basically failed English across a couple of years because I didn't want to deal with the fear you know yeah and um and I when I explained that to them they're just like no way that's that's me you know because that's what they're doing at work because they're hyper intelligent people most likely like um have some of that introverted tendency so they like they relate I can relate to them, you know, and then, yeah. then they see that what I look like on stage. Cause I don't look like an introvert. Like I don't look like an introvert when I'm speaking to you now, but no. that's like years, years of practice, you know? Yeah. Okay. So it's just that relatability of the same sort of, doesn't matter what domain you're in. It's kind of like, um, everyone's got the same sort of problems, I guess that can cross over. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fear is fear. Oh, stress is stress work is work like it's performance is performance it doesn't matter what you want to be good at performing at the framework to do it is is still the same yeah yeah right um what are some tips that you have for getting that rapport or that respect with the crowd for a keynote talk i mean i have to speak at a conference next week so i'll just take all <laughs> i think um I, the best stuff that i was told like small technique is like speak to the audience like you're speaking to one person like the demeanor uh that you have now the way you're talking to me is is how you should uh converse with the audience that you're talking to because then they feel like they're having a one-on-one conversation with you you know and that like that's the demeanor you want so it's just imagining uh i'm gonna tell what I'm going to tell to my best friend, you know, I'm going to explain it that way. Cause, and then that's the real self. Cause then you're being real when you're on stage, you know, I think, I think that's the best thing. And then you kind of 
and like your gaze is the other tech, like you'd look at one person at a time, you know, and you just move around the room and look at one and tell them like they're your best friend. And, and when you like go from one person to the other, the whole audience just thinks that you end up like at certain moments you're looking at them, you know? So it's like you're having a one-on-one conversations that, that, and then, and like we were talking about before stories is like, take them into the story, you know, add like, even if it's a one minute story, a five minute story to get a, a point across is way more powerful than just going, you need to do this, this, and this. Yeah. It's like, here's an, like when this happened to me, the other, or this has happened to me the other day, or, or like, it doesn't have to be a, even a personal story. It's like, it could be a story of someone else, you know, close to you or, or something you don't even know, or a book that you read or, but, yeah, the story to get the point across is way more powerful. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I prepare. <laughs> and prepare. <laughs> That's the part. <laughs> Don't put your head in the sand and pretend yeah. like you're going to be all right. <laughs> well, Say it in front of a camera. Watch. Watch. That's the hardest part is watch yourself speaking on video. That's like, that's I've the quickest that. way to learn. Yeah. yeah. My, if that, my, and that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Yeah. I, I worked yeah. with in video analysis for a long time. And so people do that with, with sport a lot, but then it crossed over into the business world and people had to, you know, watch themselves present or watch themselves consult with a um, yeah. patient, for instance, like if we were filming doctor patient things and um, yeah, it was kind of like you had to eat your own breakfast and you, whenever you did a talk, you'd have to film it and, and show it back to your manager. Oh, it's your seasoned yeah. veteran then because that, that's exactly, I mean, there's no better way to upskill yourself when it comes to communicating than watching yourself do it. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I, I only had like a couple of other little things to, to um, ask. It was more just about, you know, people worry about what could go wrong at a talk and, um, What's the most important thing to get right, do you think? Um, yeah, I, so I think it's like your presence on stage is the most important thing to get right. And that's like an authentic one. And that's what comes from just pretending like you're speaking to your best friend but, and, and know your material so that you can deliver it, but have that demeanor, you know, I think because that's the relatable one. I think you don't want to get that wrong. I mean, and then it's the same as what you're doing in surfing. Like you prepare for the worst case scenario so that no matter what bad scenario can happen, you've got a way out. So it's like, okay, my, uh, the AV might crash. And so all my slides might not work. So you got to be able to do your talk without the slides, you know? Yeah. So and, it, and then you don't have to worry about that happening. And, yeah. and if you freeze, like my, my mind freezes on stage all the time. Like, Really? I'll like lose track of what I'm yeah, supposed to say, but I, I've got like a way out of that situation where I've, I know I can always revert to the same sort of story that can fit kind of anywhere in my talk. And if it happens that I, I freeze, I can just go down that route and then get back to where I was. Like it's, so it's just like a, a safety mechanism. And then that way I don't have to stress too much about if it happens. Yeah. And then when you stress less about if it's going to happen, then it usually doesn't happen as much. You know? Yeah. I guess that's like, it's, that's just um, experience over time, right? Like you, yeah. you that it's not, it's not even the worst thing to freeze on stage. It's not the worst thing to forget what you're going to say next. It's like, 
experience tells you that there's always sort of a way around that. Yeah, but I mean, the best thing to do is be prepared and don't let it happen. Because yeah, I mean, you might it might be pretty bad if you lose the client that you were pitching to, you know, or or for me, if I get up and screw a job up that someone's paying me all that money to do, and then it goes out to the industry that I oh, not that good a speaker, I might lose fifty jobs from that. So it's kind of like. It, it, like it's not going to kill you if you do stuff up and you can always come back from it, but it's just so much better to, I mean, and that's where my pessimism comes from is to yeah. like be prepared for the worst and, and don't screw it up kind of thing. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, my last question, which was just more of a general question, I guess it talks to that experience a little bit, but what's something that you wish you knew when you were in your twenties? Oh, this was such a good question. Um, all right, the and you would know this the feeling that you get when you meet your baby, your first child, like that feeling. I think if you could bottle that feeling or put it into a pill or create some sort of virtual reality experience that could show teenagers or young adults that that's what that's going to feel like, like if you could do that for them they would navigate their life completely differently. Like you would put everything into place so that you're ready to have kids. You're set up financially. You'll do everything, you know, you'll sacrifice everything you need to sacrifice to provide for that future child because then you know what that feels like. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's so hard to explain how amazing that feeling is, but terrifying. So it's kind of, if I could have known that when I was younger, I'm like, oh, I would have sacrificed so much more to set everything up so that your kids have an even better life. You know, like I feel like I would have, not that I didn't do a decent job, but I, I feel like I, if I wish I had known that because it would have been the most motivating factor in my life if you could, if you knew what that was going to feel like. Wow, that's such a good way to end. Not the thing <laughs> I was expecting to come out of your mouth, I'll, I'll admit. No, and it wouldn't have eight weeks ago. It's kind of, <laughs> when it happened, it's like, wow, like, it's crazy. But maybe I wouldn't have taken all the stupid risks that I took surfing big waves, <laughs> oh, <laughs> whether that would have been a positive or negative. Like, it, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that that's one of the things, factor. right? So, yeah, like I, I am addicted to adventure sports. Um but that I don't know where the place for those is. Like, I feel like oh, I've been skydiving three times, loved it every time. Thought I was due for another one, but uh, I don't know. Like maybe I've ticked that box and it's done. It's tough. You've reshaped that your risk profile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely reshape your risk profile. I think like, <laughs> but it's not that you. You, you probably just prepare more. I guess. That's my, yeah. that's my theory of going back to surfing big waves again. I won't take the risks that I used to take. Nowhere, not even close, but I'll, I'll do a better job preparing and I'll, um, and I'll just figure out a way to do it. Like take more risk out of surfing big waves and do it in a way that's safer. You know, that's because now the ultimate goal is not the career success. It's, it's staying alive. But if I can have both, that would be amazing. But time will tell. <laughs> Oh, that's a really good point to finish on. Oh, Mark, you're a legend. Thank you so much for all of your time. No worries. Really interesting. Um, I know that we'll probably get a lot of requests to just 
talk to you. So where do we send people if they, if they come through and say, that Mark Matthews guy, let me, let me get in touch with him. Um, oh, my website's uh, markmatthews.com. Matthews with one T. Um, if you want to contact me, email, speaking opportunities, anything like that, it's hello at markmatthews.com. And then if you want to see anything around what I'm doing, surfing or I'm a little bit slack with it, but uh, my Instagram is Mark Matthews Surf and that's where I post the little stuff that I do post. Is oh, on there. definitely people go and see that because that, <laughs> that is a very cool page. Um, okay, thanks so much, Mark. And if, any, if I get any requests directly, I'll just send them straight on to you. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right, Landau. Thanks. Bye.